Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. This is At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Dolores Huerta, you've been a, a feminist, an organizer, fighter for the rights of migrant workers, others involved in social justice for decades. It's an honor to talk to you. Thank you. You're welcome. You were awarded the Medal of Freedom in 2012 for your years of work, the highest civilian honor of the United States. Do you remember what you were feeling when you got that award? Oh, sure. Well, number one, I felt that uh, it was a recognition of the important work of community organizing, because I think a lot of people, I remember during the um, campaign when President Obama was running and Sarah Palin kind of denigrated that, oh, he's just a community organizer. Well, to me, community community organizing is very important work, uh, because number one, you're down there at the grassroots level, you're talking to people, you're empowering them, uh, you're advocating, and you're changing systems and structures and policies and laws, so yeah. I think it's very important. How was it to have a community organizer handing you that award as well? That was Those were my thoughts exactly <laughs> at the time when the president gave me the award. This, 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 these were my thoughts. This is a community organizer. Well, the most powerful person in, in the world, probably, the president, president of the United States, uh, giving me this recognition for the kind of work that I do and the kind of work that he did uh, when he was a young person. Yeah, yeah. It is pretty remarkable, isn't it, to have a community organizer as the president. That's not the usual path we find for presidents. How do you think it, do you, do you see his work as a community or- organizer in anything he's doing mm-hmm. as president? Well, I think he's definitely tried um, in some of the laws that he passed, like the first law that he signed when he became president was the Lilly Ledbetter Act. Uh, which uh, meant that women had to be taken into consideration uh, for promotions, et cetera, as well as men, and they couldn't be discriminated in that fashion. Um, I think that his, uh, what he has tried to do while he is a president with the Affordable Care Act is another example, again, realizing that there's so many millions of people in our country that didn't have any kind of health care, and uh, you know, making that a part of his uh, priorities and his legacy in this country. And now, even with this current um, decision that he's uh, announced that he's going to take a executive action on immigration. I think this all points to the fact that he cares about working people, what he's done on student loans, for instance, in trying to reduce the uh, interest rates that they have to pay uh, and change, trying to change that structure so that the banks aren't the ones that are the only ones that give student loans. So um, I, I think all of his, many of his priorities have been in, in terms of thinking about the people out of the most vulnerable people in our society. Listening to you give that that list of of his work, he's gotten a lot of criticism for not having a, he won't have a legacy. Like Obama has failed as a president. Um, But that's a list of successes. What do you want, what do you tell somebody like President Obama from your experience as somebody who's worked a long time to achieve successes, incremental changes? You have, you know, what do, what do you say to him if you, you know, if you were sitting here? What would you say to him about that that notion of legacy? Well, not only have I, uh, would I say say it to him? I actually have said it to him, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just told him a great big thank you, thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for caring about, you know, people that are, you might say the, the people that have the, well, that have, the the littlest amount of power in our society, and thank you for taking taking care of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gets that. 
Oh, he does. I think in his heart he knows that. And I remember when we first met, I first met President Obama, not the first time, but the time that we were able to sit down and talk to President Obama. I had met him a couple of times during the campaign. And uh, uh, what he wanted to talk about was organizing. Uh, he had uh, passed a resolution for Cesar Chavez's uh, birthday and uh, in his first year of office, and so we were invited to the White House with Cesar's family. And uh, what he wanted, and he talked to Cesar's oldest son, uh, Fernando Chavez, and he said, okay, tell me about how your dad did the organizing. That he, he didn't want to talk about anything else. This is what he wanted to talk about. Oh, and great. so yeah, we were, t were telling him about some of the early days and the kind of uh, kind of t tactics that we used in organizing. How we, we had all of the kids out there passing leaflets, even though they were some of them were very still very small. Mm -hmm. Why did you have the little kids doing that? Ah, oh, well, number one, we didn't have that many people <laughs> when we started, and uh, both sisters had a, a large family. I had a large family, and our kids were, uh, you know, so they were they were old enough that they could pass leaflets out. And it's good for them because I think that it, and I can say that in terms of my family is that uh, they learned organizing at an, at an early stage. I mean, it kind of it was a lifestyle with us, and so, mm -hmm. you know, it, it. But I do believe that when people do volunteer work, like organizing, like passing leaflets, uh, uh, getting petitions, uh, advocating, going to city council meetings or boards of supervisors or the state legislature or even the Congress, that that's how people develop their leadership skills. When you go door to door, knocking on doors to get people registered to vote or to convince them to come out and vote and explain the issues to them, that really develops leadership in an individual. Yeah, people have to do the work in order to understand the work and then to feel confident in doing the next work, right? Absolutely, I think that uh, leadership is uh, not something that you can, it's not uh, osmosis, you know, you just can't pass it on from one person to the other. People actually have to do the work to uh, be able to develop their leadership skills. You know, you also got the, uh, from President Clinton, you were awarded the uh, Eleanor D. Roosevelt Human Rights Award from President Clinton. And I was thinking about Eleanor Roosevelt and h how do you see her impact on, on your life? Do you, is there one? Well, absolutely, yes. Uh, I know uh, I have a large family. I have 11 children. And uh, I remember, uh, I think, reading or hearing this, I'm not sure which, but uh, when, when President Roosevelt died and uh, uh, her daughter approached her and said, well, now, you know, that you, you can now, you know, be a, a good grandmother. You weren't, and I think the statement was something like, well, you were not a very good mother, but now you have the opportunity to be a, 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 a good grandmother. And she said, well, I was not a very good mother, so uh, that means that uh, I won't be a very good grandmother either. I've got, I've got, I've got other, other, work needs to be, other work needs to be done. And so she went on to uh, form the whole uh, refugee program uh, and present it to, to the United Nations, which became a very major part of the work after World War II. You know, that's interesting, because I was going to end this interview by asking you, at, at 83, Eighty-four. Um, why? Why are you still working? Why aren't you uh, hanging out with your grandkids? <laughs> well, uh, because uh, again, like Eleanor Roosevelt said, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, and we still need a lot of people to understand that they have power, uh, that they can make changes, uh, but that they've got to learn how to work together um, in in organization to uh, to make those changes possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, born in uh, in a small mining town of Dawson in northern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. I, I lived for many years in Albuquerque, and I know that area. I love New Mexico. Your father was a farm worker, a miner, uh, uh, 
a union activist who was elected to the New Mexico legislature in 1938. Uh, what influence did his career have on your work? Well, um, you know, I didn't grow up with my dad, but just knowing uh, that uh, he was a strong union advocate uh, up until the time that he died, he just, uh, and uh, everywhere that he went, he managed to organize a union when he uh, left uh, New Mexico to come to California. Uh, he, I started working as a farm worker and actually either instigated or, or was part of a huge asparagus strike in Stockton, California. And then when he went to work, my dad was in the service also, and when he went to work uh, at, at uh, a government um, site, he organized uh, the union there right away, <laughs> the American Federation of Government Employees Union. So he was always in, and he was a contributor to the United Farm Workers. And so th I think that that part of my, knowing that about my father influenced me. But, but in the state of New Mexico, uh, because my grandparents were also born there, there was also a lot, of, there was always a lot of political um, knowledge and activity in our family. There was always a lot of talk during uh, the Depression uh, to, about Wall Street and how terrible they were and uh, talking about labor unions. And so my family was, we kind of grew up with that tradition of political activism. And so my, my knowing that about my dad was important, but my influence, my bigger influence in my, in my life was my mother yeah. because uh, that's who I grew up with. Because my parents divorced when we were, I was only like two or three years old. Yeah, yeah. Your mother uh, moves to Stockton. She gets a 70-room hotel, mm -hmm. and uh, she's an entrepreneur. And I, I don't know, is, is, is she a person who showed you a path to feminism with her work? Yeah, my, my mother was, she was a very hard worker. And, uh, you know, when we, we first moved to Stockton, she actually worked two jobs. She worked uh, in the cannery at night in the day as a waitress and was able to save enough money to, uh, first she opened her own restaurant, and she was a very fabulous, fabulous cook, and so uh, you know she had a restaurant. And then, uh, after during World War II, when they relocated, uh, I should say, the, the Japanese in the concentration camps, then uh, she had an one of her Japanese friends asked her to take over her business, which was a hotel. And so my mother took over her business to, while she was while they were in the concentration okay. camps. Really? And then did they come back? Did those well, folks come back? They did come back, but there was, as you know, a lot of prejudice against the Japanese and Americans. And my mother, ha she had the business, but she didn't own the hotel. And she didn't own the building. She just had the business. And, and the people that owned the building, the Sanguinettis, uh, refused to give it back to the Japanese. Hmm. But then my mother helped them start another business. Um, how'd she do that? What did she do? Well, what they did is they opened up a jewelry shop. Yeah, my mother helped them do that. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable at the time, huh, for the really? Japanese. It was very disheartening to think about what happened in America at that time. Did it affect you? I mean, you must have seen it. You saw your mother's work. Oh, absolutely. Not only that, but we saw, you know, being, I was, what, 11 years old when that happened, and I remember seeing all of our Japanese friends just, you know, losing them from almost one day to the next. It happened, you know, within just a couple of weeks, they were all, you know, deported and put into concentration camps. It was very sad. Yeah, yeah. And Stockton, pretty diverse place, right? So did you, as a young girl even, see the connections between whites, Japanese, Hispanics? Did you see all that? Well, I was very fortunate, and I do talk about this often, is that where I grew up, and I guess Stockton is an agricultural community, so uh, we were very fortunate growing up that although everybody was very poor, because this was during the Depression, or right after the Depression, and uh, yet, you know, we had, uh, I remember my neighbors on the left side of our house were Italian, uh, kitty corner across the street, they were Greeks. Um, my neighbors on the right-hand side uh, were African-American, the Smith family, 
and then we had the Filipino, the Revelars, we had the Wongs, and of course uh, the Yoshikawas, the Japanese, and uh, we had the Oki kids, you know, the the red-headed Oki kids that we ran around with, and we even had a young man from Afghanistan. And so, and then there was a Mexican family down the street. So it, we were very, very fortunate to be able to grow up with that kind of ethnicity. I learned to eat with chopsticks when I was seven years old. My best friend was a Chinese girl named Dolores Sun. We had the same name, different last names. Hmm. So I was very, very fortunate because we ran around. Our parents all worked, so we were alone a lot. We ate each other's food and went to each other's homes. And I think that really prepared me uh, for the world, basically. Uh, you know, not to, to number one appreciate other people's cultures, and uh, you know, being comfortable with with other people's uh, other ethnic groups. But but at the same time, I read in your biography, uh, Dolores encountered much racism growing up in school. She remembers a teacher accusing her of stealing another student's work because of her ethnicity and giving her an unfair grade. Mm-hmm. So you had that at the same time. Oh, the, the racism in the neighborhood. We were fine, but it was in the in the, in in the school, especially in high school. And grammar school, it wasn't it wasn't so bad. In fact, we I didn't feel any racism in grammar school at all. But when we went to high school, and unfortunately. Uh, they had built a new high school where a lot of my friends went to, but because I was like a block uh-huh. away from the, de, the the demarcation line there, I had to go to this other school, and uh, there we were treated very, very unfairly. All, myself, all the, in fact, by, by the time I finished high school, most of the kids that I graduated from middle school had all dropped out. Well, what was going on? Who was running the school, or well, what was actually, the attitude? Actually, the dean of girls uh, was eventually fired, unfortunately not until she had damaged the lives of so many young people. Uh, but uh, even as a, when I was in, in high school, I was uh, very active in the Girl Scouts, and I had written an essay, and uh, there were two top prizes for the essay contest. One of them was you could go to Switzerland, and the other one was you could go to a Navajo camp in New Mexico and spend the summer there, or two or three weeks there. And so I was so excited because I won the second prize, but they wouldn't let, and all of my teachers, I went to all my teachers, I got their permission to, because I had to leave uh, school early to be able to go to this camp. I think it was like two weeks early, and I had very good grades in school, and yet the dean of girls would not let me go. And she said if I went, I wouldn't be able to graduate from high school. But I knew that there were other people that I knew who were Anglo kids that were given permission to go with their families on early vacations, et cetera. You know, so it was very disappointing. Yeah. So what did you just do, chalk that up to racism and move on? Uh, absolutely. And then all of the other incidents that we had in the school that were very, not only racist, but uh, very bigoted also because uh, they catered to the wealthy kids at the school and all of the poor kids. Like I remember one time we had the... Uh, there was a, a contest for the cheerleading contest, and these uh, these Oki girls, you know, these poor kids, poor white kids, they had a um, fa- fabulous, fabulous, uh, you know, presentation, but they didn't give it to them. They gave it to these these other rich kids. Our high school was very, well, it was a combination of very wealthy kids and very poor kids. Sounds like America today. Um, <laughs> you know, by the way, just on that, you were a Girl Scout. You were a drum majorette. So uh, how did the other kids treat you, just in general? Were you seen as the, a, a goody two-shoes? How were you treated? Well, actually, yes. <laughs> That's the way I was, uh, I was looked at. But, but it was good because I had a lot of friends. And the one thing, <clears throat> because we had our, I mean, had our own business, uh, our, our hotel became like a teenage center. You know, all of the kids would come over to our house and, 
uh, you know, we would play games and make candy and, and do all kinds of fun things. You got married. You had, you had two daughters of your own, and then you became a teacher. Mm -hmm. So considering the experience you had in, in that high school, why did you choose to become a teacher? Well, when I started out, I was going to become a social worker, uh, but then I dropped out, got married, I had two kids, got a divorce, and went back to school. And uh, then I thought, well, if I became a teacher, then I could have my hours would be very accommodating to my, for my children. Yeah. Did, that, did it work out that way? Yes, yes it did. Yeah, yeah. But I read that you said uh, you were seeing too many kids coming to school with bare feet and empty stomachs, and uh, you thought you could do more by organizing farm workers than by trying to teach they're hungry children. That's an interesting decision. That's a very, I mean, that's that's a very profound moment of change, isn't it, for you? Well, what happened in between that decision is that I met this great man named Fred Ross Sr., and I was very active in the community. I belonged to social clubs and church organizations. Uh, as, a, as a teenager, I was always very active. My mother was always pushing me. Actually, I was very shy as a, as a kid, so my mother was always pushing me out there to to do different things, and you know, I did dancing, and uh, you know, I, she gave us music lessons. So I was pretty much used to being out in the public. But uh, when and so we belonged to a couple of uh, social organizations, and but then when I met this man named Fred Ross, uh, who I was introduced to by one of my teachers at the school, and she actually she wasn't a teacher; she was a friend, but she was a teacher at the college there, and uh, that's when I learned about real organizing. Uh, community organizing from Fred Ross Sr. I see. And, so, uh, and so I w had gotten involved in the community service organization by that time. And so uh, once I learned that you could really, you know, build power and change things, and then I decided then at that point that I would quit teaching and, hmm. and uh, devote myself to organizing. Hmm. I could see the straight line from your from your mother up to that and the work. The Stockton Community Service Organization, barrio improvements, registering voters. What what barrio improvements were you seeking? Do you remember? Well, uh, there was a, a number of uh, issues that, that we tackled. At that time, it's interesting because it, when you look at the, what's going on in today's world now, but uh, we stopped police searches of, of uh, people, you know, who... Of course, now it happens all the time. So, some of the things that, that we uh, did at that time, uh, you know, we uh, I have to kind of go back into my memory to think of some of the things. But it, it's, let me just tell you that the things that we changed in CSO, which were amazing, uh, we were able to pass uh, very important laws in the state of California. We got ballots in the Spanish language. I think mm -hmm. we're one of the first states that did that. Uh, disability insurance for farm workers which only California and Hawaii to this day have this. So this is a, a penny that's deducted from uh, every worker's paychecks that goes to disability insurance. Uh, we were able to get the workers' compensation for farm workers back in 58, which, by the way, New York State still doesn't have. Uh, and uh, we had um, one very important oh, driver's licenses in the Spanish language. Uh, these are all bills, by the way, that I lobbied through Sacramento. But one of the big major... Uh, pieces of legislation that we pass, which today millions of people are uh, actually uh, being able to benefit from this law, is that we're, we were able to take away the citizens, uh, the requirement that you had to be a citizen to get public assistance. Before that, you could not get any kind of aid to, uh, to needy children or, or aid to the blind or to the disabled. You had to be a U.S. citizen. And many of these families had been here for many years and their children had gone off to World War II and they had fought and you know many had been killed in the war and yet they couldn't get old age pensions so we passed that law in 1961 and today 
when you think of the Affordable Care Act, how many millions of people are able to get uh, health insurance because that are not citizens, but they're legal residents of the country, not undocumented, but legal residents, and they can get the benefits of, of uh, public assistance. So that was a huge, huge law. Then we, there was another, uh, just recently in Bakersfield, we're celebrating the 75 years of the Grapes of Wrath, and uh, um, there was a scene in the Grapes of Wrath where people didn't have food, and uh, there was a law, that was one of the first laws that we got rid of in CSO, is that you, in order to get any kind of public assistance, you had to live in the county for a whole year. Well, they didn't have an employment insurance, you know, so farm workers and would go from one county to the other. But if you didn't have like 12 months of rent receipts or utilities, you could not get any kind of food from the surplus food, from the food banks. And uh, so we were able to, that was one of the first laws that we changed, so that farm workers would be able to receive surplus food if, as long as they lived in the state of California. If they were in the state of California, then they could get this. They didn't have to show receipts that they lived in that one particular county. Why? Dolores Huerta, I listened to that, that list of things you accomplished, and I can hear the, uh, the Tea Party Republicans pulling their hair out, mm -hmm. saying, oh, this is exactly what's wrong with America <laughs> today. And, and it's, it's all these, uh, what would they say, oh, privileges that have been extended to people who aren't citizens of this country. What do you, what do you say back to them? Well, uh, I, we have to just remind people all of the time, and I love to start out with uh, saying, uh, where did your grandparents come from? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, every single uh, group of people that came to the United States uh, got their legal status at one time or the other. And in fact, in the 20s, uh, we, in the 1920s, we had more foreign-born in the United States than, uh, than uh, born in the United States, and, and foreign-born were allowed to vote. People didn't have to be citizens to vote. Wow. Well, you have to say that to the the, neighbor, the family that uh, wouldn't let the Japanese folks come back into the into their hotel, right? Right, and then they find out that you know of all of the. I mean, they they put all the Japanese in the concentration camps and found that there was never any reason. In fact, uh, if, if people do the research on that, and Steinbeck, by the way, wrote about this a lot, that uh, a lot of the the push to put the Japanese into concentration camps was by the Associated Farmers, which is a very conservative. Uh, organization of growers because they wanted that land that the Japanese had, had been able to purchase. By the way, are you a Steinbeck fan? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. East of Eden, Grapes of Wrath. All of them. All of them. Yeah. Why, why was he? What, what did he have? What did he have his finger on that was makes him so profound all these years later? Well, he was writing about uh, what was happening at the time. Uh, and uh, he was able to, of course, be, being a brilliant, brilliant writer, but write it, uh, his writing was through the, the lives of the people that he was writing about. You know, it wasn't like an academic thing. But, although he did do a lot of, uh, a lot of what he wrote about was, in a sense, people should really read a lot of Steinbeck because he writes, now that we're talking about this immigration debate, he writes a lot about immigration. I mean, there was a time uh, when... Uh, the people that were coming in, uh, the growers always needed workers. After they got all of these lands uh, in the Southwest, you know, they were able to get all these lands from Mexico. They needed people to be able to farm the lands and to develop the lands. So they just opened up the borders again. And people, uh, Cesar Chavez's mother, I think, paid two pennies to cross the border. Wow. And, and, and uh, people don't realize that, that we had this huge, and the, the growers actually were the ones who were passing out the, the visas. 
You know, there's the ones that actually, not the government, but the growers were the ones that passed out the visas uh, for people to come over. And then, the again, looking at the racism that was perpetuated by the agricultural community uh, when they had the Oriental Exclusion Act uh, that uh, uh, they t- prohibited uh, Chinese and Japanese from uh, buying land. And then they added a, a miscegnation clause to that so that they could, uh, Asians could not marry Caucasians. And so you had all of these, like Chinese, uh, many Chinese who were not able to marry, but then you had all the Filipinos that were brought into this country. And they were covered by that law. And so many of the Filipinos were brought, uh, thousands that were brought in to do farm work. And uh, they were, you know, very young, maybe in their, their young adults when they were brought in. And yet the vast majority of Filipinos never married in, this, in the United States. Yeah. They died as single men. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, speaking of that, uh, the agriculture workers. I was I, I wanted a little history of this one aspect of the things, all the work, lobbying work you did. 1962, you lobbied for legislation repealing the Bracero program. Oh yes. Why was that? Well, what was going on at that period of time? Yeah, I completely forgot about that one. Yeah, uh, what was going on at that time is that they had brought during World War II in 1940. Well, the war started in 41. Uh, then they started bringing in, again, people from Mexico to do farm work because so many people had been drafted. And uh, so they started the uh, Public Law 78, which is uh, a foreign worker program where they brought in uh, people from Mexico. But what they did is that, uh, again, the racism kicks in, and uh, they were treated very badly. Uh, I remember in Stockton, California, where I grew up, that they had the Braceros, the Mexican farm workers, um, in these barracks at the fairgrounds, and very, and it was interesting. The people that might maybe had a relative would wanted to go visit them. They wouldn't let them go. They wouldn't let them visit the far the, the people. So that was one of the things that we had to fight so that they would be able to allow to visit their relatives. So they were almost hell like. And at the same time, and I love to do this contrast. We had prisoners of war in Stockton that were uh, in nice, neat white cottages. And they were allowed to come into town and go to the movies, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and yet here you had the Mexican farm workers that were, you know, being treated like prisoners, and you had the POWs, I mean, the the uh, prisoners of war, the, the Germans that were just uh, treated like guests uh, in, in the same town. But the, the reason that we ent- uh, worked to end the Bracero program is that because the wages had dropped so much because now you're talking about the first processes were brought in 1942-43 they were in terrible living conditions uh, that was part of the work that we did in CSO was trying to represent the Braceros because, and then they wouldn't pay them I remember people working for two weeks and having a paycheck of $16 I see. and people were injured and they weren't given doctors uh, I was actually my mother's hotel and my house were full of uh, I would bring them to my house or to this hotel, uh, people that had been injured on the job and they weren't taken care of. They, they just didn't take care of them. They would ship them back to Mexico even though they were injured. It was really, and, and then the wages of the local farm workers had dropped so low, down to like 50 cents an hour or even less. Uh, they, were, they weren't paying, the local farm workers were being denied work and under the law, there was a provision that they could not, they, could, they couldn't bring in the Braceros, unless there was a labor shortage. Well, there was no labor shortage. And uh, so many people became wealthy. And then the government would give each, if a farmer had, uh, say you had 100 workers, every single day the government gave them uh, $2 a day for each worker. 
So people became fabulously rich. I mean, one of the people I can name by name is Alex Spanos, who owns uh, the uh, the who's a, uh, owns the, the Chargers, the the football team. His family. My mother worked with Alex in Stockton with his father, actually Gus Spanos, and they had a little lunchroom counter with maybe about ten stools. Well, they became fabulously rich by uh, because they got the contracts to feed the braceros, and of course the food that they gave them wasn't all that great. And uh, so many of these people got so wealthy uh, because of, of, of the government giving them the money to take, to feed the braceros, and they didn't feed them very well. So it wasn't that 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 you were opposed to Mexicans coming in and working. It was that the the it was a corrupt program. It, it was a very corrupt program, and and the workers were just treated terribly. I mean, terribly. It was almost like slavery. They were worked, and then they would maybe bring in a thousand workers, and they would uh, work them four hours a day. They would take half of them out and work in four hours and then another group four hours. And at the meantime, the local farm workers weren't able to get any work. So we had hearings on this. I went to Washington to testify. Uh, eventually, we were able to, to get enough uh, congressional support to end the program. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of uh, the religious people got involved. Uh, there was a book that was written by Ernesto Galarza called uh, Spiders in the House, I think, something like that. So there was a big, uh, uh, you know, a lot of outrage about the way these workers were being treated. Some of them, if they refused to work, they would put them in jail. I mean, the stories are just endless about the way that they were treated. So we finally, at the same time, we were helping the Brussels. But an interesting point, now that uh, with today's, uh, uh, pro uh, this, this week's pronouncement of Obama taking an executive action on immigration, after the Placero program ended, the unilaterally, without any legislation, half a million of the Braceros were allowed to come into the country without any legislation. <laughs> and then when that happened, this was in 1963, around that time. And uh, so uh, I went to, came to Washington. I spoke to Douglas MacArthur II, who was in the State Department, and uh, had a meeting with him and said, well, you know, they're letting the men come in, but without their wives and children. And he said, oh, we'll fix that, and he did. So then they allowed the wives and the children to come in. And we were, and so Cesar and myself, we were just starting the union at that time. And so we were able to process the papers for so many of these uh, families uh, so that they could come in. And all they needed was three documents. <laughs> they needed three documents. They needed a letter of uh, an offer of employment from an employer that said, uh, you know, and this could be labor contractors, they didn't have to be landowners. And they would say, I offer Jose Lopez a, a year-round job, you know, at this wage, and, uh, uh, and he'll be my employer. And then they did another letter from a local person that would say, uh, if this family, if this uh, person falls into hard times or whatever, I will make sure that they do not go on public assistance, on welfare, and fingerprints. That was it. Hmm. And and so what happened to those people? Did they they were allowed to stay? But did oh, they become citizens? Oh yeah, many of them have, did become citizens, right? Well, afterwards, uh, that, but the the first step process was the government said, okay, well we'll yeah, let these people sure. come in. Why? why they, so because they could still get low wage workers that way. Why did they do yeah, that? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, uh -huh. Huh. absolutely. But <laughs> and so all of this uproar about the gov about President Obama doing something illegal. I mean, they've been doing this for years. I mean. Even, as I mentioned earlier, when, when they got these lands from um, Mexico and they were bringing in all of these people and they were just had, and the growers were handing out the visas. It wasn't even the government yeah, that was doing yeah. it. So there's a, a huge precedent. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So let me let me ask you just a, a few questions about your relationships with Cesar Chavez. First of all, what 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 drew you two together? Uh, the farm workers. Basically, that's what it was because uh, I met Cesar in the community service organization, and he had been working <clears throat> to try to help another. Well, let me go back a little bit. In, in Stockton, California, because my work was CSO, and Ernesto Galarza, by the way, who had wrote, wrote the, written this book, on Spiders in the House, mm-hmm. he had been hired by the Meat Cutters Union, <clears throat> the Butcher's Union, uh, to organize farm workers. And so he came to the community service organization, and uh, we set up a farm worker committee, which I headed up. And so I organized a group of about 150 workers, uh, and then uh, turned it over to the Meat Cutters Union. And then they hired a couple of organizers, but then they asked me not to come back to their meetings. And, uh, but then the group fell apart. And so then I organized a second group of, of uh, farm workers called, uh, and we called the organization Agricultural Workers Association. And uh, so I went to some of my friends in the African-American community and uh, went to all the churches, black churches, asking people to support us. Uh, and of course we had the Mexican farm workers from the CSO, we had the Oki farm workers also. I found a volunteer organizer for that group, and uh, then a Filipino organizer, Larry Eatleong. I went to all my Filipino friends, and they say, yeah, you gotta find this guy, Larry Eatleong, he's a good leader, found him. So we set up this organization, we organized a group. We were all volunteers doing this, and it was called the Agricultural Workers Association, AWA. Uh-huh. And uh, so we I, I organized a group of about 400 farm workers, and then the AFL-CIO, uh, well, we had some priests that were working with us, uh, Father uh, McDonald and Father Dugan, and uh, Father uh, M- Father McCullough, Father McDonald, and Father Dugan. And so these three priests got into a van and drove all the way to Washington, D.C. to meet with George Meany, who was the president of the AFL-CIO, and told him that they needed to do to help farm workers organize. So they sent uh, some representatives out, and uh, so when they came, we had this hall full of farm workers, and they were so impressed that they decided to fund uh, uh, an organizing project, and it was called the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. And uh, so I, they hired me uh, as the executive secretary of that organization, and uh, and we were doing pretty good. You know, we're having these huge meetings of farm workers, and uh, then. <clears throat> they hired some, a fellow named Luke Cranock, and uh, then he they asked me to stop sending out the postcards for the meetings. And I so for one meeting I did go and took the, my st- my little postcard machine and sent out my postcards for, to tell people about the meetings. And then they brought in, and then I was told not to do that again. And then they brought it, and then they started working with the labor contractors. And uh, I walked into the office one day, and here's all these la- all these labor contractors uh, who had been really pretty much very being very abusive of the farm labor force, and I was kind of shocked when I saw that. And then I was told that that was going to be the new policy that we're going to start working through the labor contractors. And what happened is that they were trying to to uh, impress uh, the national office that they were actually had a, a union by deducting dues from the workers. And they were deducting a dollar a day. And of course, with the Mexican families, that was very harsh because the Mexicans usually worked as a family. And uh, so you had them taking, a, you know, farm workers' wages were down to like 50 cents an hour at that time. Wow. So to talk, to talk, deducting a dollar a day from each person was a lot. And so 
I left. I left the organization. I resigned. Huh. And uh, but Larry Eatleon stayed with the organization because the Filipino farmer because they had a whole different system of working. Uh, number one, they had their own kitchens. You know, they, in the labor camps, like the Mexican farm workers, they would have, the company would provide the cook and they would deduct their food, you know, from their paychecks. Well, the Filipino, Filipino farm workers, they had their own cooks and uh, they bought their own food and they all negotiated and always got better wages for their people. So that system worked for them. And they had to be licensed labor contractors, like Larry Eatleong, who was a leader, who was a licensed labor contractor. So uh, I left, and many other, other people left, and Larry Eatleong stayed and became the leader of the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, after that happened, Assessor Chavez had been working uh, in uh, Oxnard, uh, organizing farm workers there, and he turned his group of workers over to the Packing House Workers Union. Same thing happened. After he turned the, the group over, then it kind of fell apart. So then at that point, then we uh, were still in the community service organization. Also, we decided to start the union. So what, did you, what had you realized by that, that, that made you start the union? What had you realized in terms of um, organizing leadership power that made you said, oh, we have to seize the reins ourselves? Yeah, well, I, in fact, I, I, and I have told this story many, many times to many interviewers that we were in CSO, and Caesar called me over to his house. On, it was on a Sunday, and he called me to come on over to the house. And so I went over there, and we were sitting in, his, in Helen Chavez's kitchen, and then he says, you know, Farm workers will never have a union unless we do it, unless we organize it. And I thought he was kidding. And he said, I said, and he said, yeah. I said, and then he said, yeah, you and I, we have to organize it. And I said, and I started laughing because I thought he was kidding. And he said, no, I'm serious. And he said, I'm very serious. And then he said, and, and these were very prophetic words. And then he said, but we will never see a national union in our lifetime. Huh. And I said, why? Why, Caesar? Because the growers are too, they're too rich, they're too powerful, and they're too racist. Huh. And that was right. Yeah. And yet you you went for it. Yeah, we went for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> we went for it. Because uh-huh. you had to. We, yeah, because we knew it, if we didn't do it, as he said, it would never happen. You know, I read the it, somewhere. I think it was actually in one of your more more official bios. Uh, the two were infamous for their blowout arguments, an element that was a natural part of their working relationship. Uh, you'll have to tell me why it was a natural part of your working relationship as well, but what did you argue about? Uh, mostly tactics, you know, and not, uh, not uh, vision or philosophy. We both believed in nonviolence. We both believed in empowering people. Uh, but we would, I call it kind of the feminist, maybe, a view of way we, we, we as women look at things differently, and I can I like to give a couple of big exa- a couple of examples that uh, when uh, we started the great boycott that uh, Cesar uh, Cesar uh, thought we should have a potato boycott because we were we were striking this huge uh, who, who today is still the largest grape grower in, in the world uh, John Jamara in California and uh, uh, well maybe Dole because Dole has bought up so much agricultural land, but I think in grapes, Jamar is still the biggest grower. And then he also had potatoes. But we had one contract with one grape grower named DiGiorgio. Uh, and uh, so Caesar was afraid that if we said boycott all grapes, that we could get sued, you know. And so we, you know, we were saying, let's uh, boycott all grapes except DiGiorgio. But when we first talked about doing an all grape, well, what happened is when we struck Jamaro, uh, 
and we started boycotting the Jamara label, then what they did is all the growers got together and started change, switching labels. So we would have had to boycott something like 58 labels because each grower had more than one label. They would have you know different labels for different kinds of grapes. And so, we, well, it was impossible. You couldn't boycott 58. And we had actually started boycotting Jamara grapes, and then we had to do something different. So then uh, I was in New York. Caesar sent me to New York to see what the, how, how the boycott was going on, what was happening with the boycott. And I told him it's impossible. You, you just can't boycott all these labels. So we had this uh, phone conversation about boycotting just all grapes. And Caesar said, no, we've got to boycott potatoes. And I said, Caesar, if you, if you boycott potatoes, people don't think of California. They're going to think of Idaho. You know, that's not going to fly. And so then I said to Caesar, you know, this is such an important decision that we have to make that I think uh, I have to fly back to California. Huh. And uh, he said uh, he didn't want to pay the, pay the <laughs> airplane bill. <laughs> so he, he kind of gave in and gave in and decided we could boycott all grapes. And, and we did. And that was very successful. Talking about that boycott, that great boycott again. Uh, so in New York City... Uh, what I did, well, I got one big grape grower, I mean, one big chain, uh, the A&P, to take off all the grapes because of Gloria Steinem was a big help on that because she knew Huntington Hartford, who was the uh, heir to the A&P fortune. And uh, then the head, the band that was then heading up the A&P stores, uh, this is the first grape boycott. Um, they, you know, we, we, he said, if your people protest in front of A&P stores, we will take the grapes off. So that's what we did. We just went around and you know, protested all the all the AMP stores, picketed the stores. But then after that, I started with the, the independent stores and then with the small chains like Wall Bombs, and then we went on to the bigger stores and bigger stores. So we got all of the grapes out in New York City. We only had one chain, Christides, uh, that we hadn't been able to clean up. In the meantime, back in California, they were still boycotting Safeway. They took on the biggest chain there. See. And so we were able to clean up all of New York uh, and and uh, and uh, from from New York all the way to Chicago. While over here they were still fighting the biggest chain. So then, uh, what happened is uh, after Bobby Kennedy, um, you, you know, we we had worked very hard to get Bobby Kennedy elected in California, and uh, so this was 1968. Then and what happened is Caesar got very sick because he did a fast. He did like a 25-day fast, and he didn't take time out to recover from that fast because he was out there campaigning for Bobby Kennedy. So I came back to California. My stepfather had passed away. I came back for the funeral, and I came to Delano, and Caesar was, you know, very running the running the union from his bed basically because he was in excruciating pain, and he was disabled almost for a year. And so when I saw the way Caesar, how sick he was, I said, I'm just staying here until you get well. He couldn't do very much about that because he was, you know, pretty pretty sick. And uh, so I came back and I took over the California boycott, the, the West Coast boycott. And I started using the same tactic of going after the small stores, you know. And so we won. We won the boycott. But that, that was just a difference in tactics. And so the, our, 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 our arguments that we would have were pretty much about about tactics. It was not about the vision of, of building the union, you know, mm. or, or maybe sometimes personalities. You know, sometimes we would uh, have arguments about a, about a certain individual, maybe that I thought, well, maybe this person you shouldn't put them in that position because you know things maybe that I, I see in them that I think might be hurtful to the union, and uh, then he would defend that 
usually guys, you know, usually the guys. So th this, these are the arguments that we would have. I want to come. To that. I want to end this about guys and gals. Mm -hmm. But let me let me ask you one thing about Cesar Chavez, his legacy, how you view it today. I mean, what? And and I want to ask you about the, what farm workers need today. But in terms of Cesar Chavez's legacy and and your legacy with him, what are your thoughts about how it has evolved? Well, um, I'd like to call it more a living history. Uh, we we set the foundation for the United Farm Workers. I mean, that was the, this is the first labor union in the United States of America for farm workers. We signed the first collective bargaining agreements. Got these laws passed, you know, unfortunately only in California. Although some of, one of the laws, of course, that we did pass that's very important, and when I talk about the laws that we passed, and some of them are, are very momentous, but the farm workers all say, we got the toilets in the field. We got the cold drinking water in the fields. We got the rest periods. That, to them, is what they remember the most. Because, you know, to think that farm workers were not even given toilets, I mean, that, you know, it, it just sounds, and the, and the fact that five farm workers were killed in this struggle to get toilets in the field, you know? And, uh, and just basic, basic human decency and human rights, you know? So those are very big, and the, and the, the toilets, and the, by the way, are now a national law. That was one of the laws that became a national law, that they had to have uh, you know, potable drinking water and toilets in the fields for farm workers. That, and, and interesting, we, we signed, we got toilets in the fields in our first union contract in 1966, didn't become, a, and we got it in all of our contracts that we, that we would sign, we had to put that in there, that the growers had to agree to put toilets in the field and to have cold, potable drinking water for the workers and give them rest periods. That was in every single contract that we signed. That was in 1966 that we signed our first contract. Oh, and unemployment insurance. They had to contribute so the workers could have checks when they were off of work. So we got that in our first contracts in 1966. Didn't become a law in California until 1975 hmm. when Jerry Brown was elected the first time. Didn't become a national law until 1982, I believe. Hmm. So, you know, like almost decades after after we got those laws in our union contracts. So... Uh, so I think that, the, you know, we built a foundation for the farm workers in California. We did pass unemployment insurance in 1975 after Jerry Brown was elected. Uh, we passed uh, the uh, Agricultural Workers Relations Act, which is the best labor law probably in the country uh, for farm workers. Uh, unfortunately, it's only in California. It's only in California. We have in New York State, for instance, Carrie Kennedy, Robert Kennedy's daughter, has been trying to pass these laws uh, in the state of New York for, you know, some many years now and hasn't been able to. So it's almost 40 years since we got these laws in California, and still the other states in the United States do not have them. Does, does that mean that some states have, uh, have some states moved ahead in some ways that at least they're closer, or are we, are we looking at a real, 40 years later, is still a huge gap in the way farm workers are, working conditions are seen around the country? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. I think some of the states have um, minimal workers' compensation. It's not, it doesn't have the, the extent of coverage that we have in California. The other, none of the states have disability insurance except California. None of the states have unemployment insurance. Some have minimal unemployment insurance, but very, very weak. It doesn't have the kind of full coverage that we have in California. Farm workers in California have the same type of unemployment insurance that all workers have. And so it's, a, you know, we're very, very far behind. And when you think of the, I mean, the, the kind of organizing that it took to be able to get these laws, you know. And one of the things, too, that's often left out 
in the history of the farm workers, and if you saw the Sacha Chavez movie, it's completely left out, is the fact that we did the voter registration, uh, the get out the vote, um, you know, supporting candidates, progressive candidates that would would vote for these laws for farm workers. And, and I have to go back, and I started out talking about Fred Ross Sr., who was the person that changed my life when I went to this house meeting when he told us of all of the great things that they had done in Los Angeles uh, for, for the Mexican-American community. And that's what inspired me to become an organizer. Because huh. I was, when he showed us these pictures of, uh, you have 100 people in a meeting, and uh, talked about all of the things that they had done in East Los Angeles by bringing in street lights and sidewalks and gutters and how they got the first Latino elected to the city council at Roy Ball and how they sent 14 police to prison for beating up Mexican-Americans. I thought, that's what I want to do. That's the organization I want to belong to. And that was the way I eventually quit teaching to become an organizer because of this great man. By the way, he was just recently inducted into the California Hall of Fame. Really? Just last month. By the way, I did notice in your own biography, uh, mm -hmm. your baby brother beaten because he was wearing a, a zoot suit mm -hmm. back in the day, so mm -hmm. that must have affected you, huh? Yeah, well, it was uh, all of the kids that I knew. And, you know, Cesar Chavez and his brother Richard were also uh, stopped by police and had their clothes stripped off of them. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Shades of what happens uh, today with kids and their, mm -hmm. and their hoodies, huh? Yeah, and the racial profiling. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. A lot of work still to be done, is what you're telling me. A lot of organizing still needs to be uh, done, and a lot of leadership still needs to be trained. Yeah, unfortunately, we still have uh, institutional racism in our society, and we see it manifested itself in, uh, you know, people being killed by police, uh, black and brown. We see it in our schools. Uh, my organization, now the Dolores Huerta Foundation, uh, that's what we're kind of focusing on right now. We've done a lot of... I'm continuing the same kind of community organizing after I left the Farm Workers Union to go back to community organizing. And in some of the farm worker areas where we've been working with uh, recent immigrants or first-generation immigrants, uh, you know, building infrastructure. It'd be, it's interesting, we're talking about uh, the Grapes of Wrath and John Steinbeck. There's a little town in, in uh, south of Bakersfield, California, called Weed Patch. That Weed Patch is the town that... Uh, in the, the Sunset Labor Camp where The Grapes of Wrath was filmed, the movie, uh -huh. and uh, where Fred Ross, by the way, was the manager of that of that uh, Sunset Labor Camp, the same person who got his sister and myself into organizing. Well, that's one of the areas we, we've been organizing, Weed Patch. Uh -huh. And in Weed Patch now, we've been able to get, there's still homes there that do not have sewers. We've been able to get, to get the homes hooked up to sewers uh, with people only having to pay $50, you know, for the hookup. Uh, we've been able to get uh, a, a gymnasium built at that middle school uh, that they didn't have at the Sunset Labor, at the Columbine Island School District. And uh, uh, we've been able to get uh, sidewalks and gutters and uh, street lights and swimming pools into an adjacent town called Lamont that is right close to Weed Patch and another town called Arvin, uh, passing, getting more homes hooked up to sewers and uh, uh, also bringing in some street, you know, just stop signs and street lights and uh, all of these like basic infrastructure that people, farm workers still do not have to this day. But the, but the way that we organize using the same method that we use in the community service organization and the way Cessna and I organize the Farm Workers Union is that we have house meetings, uh, we get the people, we have, each organizer has to uh, meet with 200 people in their homes and they bring them all together 
and then we form an organization called the United Neighbors Vecinos Unidos, and then they make a, an action plan, they set their priorities, uh, what it is that they want to improve their community, then they have to volunteer to do the work. And so we have incredible leadership. And so right now, uh, because of the work, uh, right now also we're focusing on education uh, because of the high uh, suspensions and expulsion rates of African-American students and Latino students, and uh, organizing the parents and organizing the students. And then uh, we've also now been able to get, we have uh, our residents have been able to get themselves elected to four different school boards. You know, I asked you before, you know, why aren't you done? And you gave me that answer. But I also hear in the way you talk about this that doing the work and having some successes energizes you to keep working. Is that right? Right, because it's, it's about leadership development. It's about finding that the people in those communities, the indigenous leadership, and many of them are one of our best organizers there. And so, uh, uh, totally illiterate in English, barely illiterate in Spanish, and he's one of our greatest organizers that we have. Mm -hmm. His name is Timoteo Prado, and his wife, Leticia, has now gotten, her, gotten herself elected to the school board and to the water board. <laughs> and in this last election, uh, they had uh, they won, they won uh, seven different elections. They won uh, elections to the school board, the water board, city council, and they passed another bond issue for the Arvin School District. And you know, it's, and it's, it's really when you see it's people that take on the issues in their community. You know, we organize them, and then they do the work, and that's how the leadership develops. You know, but it's just, uh, it's it's a very exhilarating, actually, and gratifying. Yeah, you're a feminist, and you you have been a, a feminist for years, <laughs> for your whole life. But um, are you seeing the changes you'd hope for? quickly enough. You worked with Gloria Steinem. You did the national chair of the 21st Century Party in 1992. Wanted women to make up 52% of the party's candidates. You wanted to see more women in power, just by way of example. We had a, we had a black Republican woman win this election cycle. We had a Latina Republican woman win this election cycle in different races. Is that a victory? Well, there's a different, uh, yeah, let's start with the word feminism, but not all women are feminists, okay? The Sarah Palin's of the world uh, the Susana Martinez's of the world, who is the governor of New Mexico, she's not a feminist. And uh, she's very anti-union, and she's against driver's licenses for undocumented workers. So she's got the straight Repo Republican Party line. So I do not consider her a feminist. I consider a feminist a person who stands up for immigrants' rights, who stands up for workers' rights, uh, for women's rights, for the, the environment, you know, for... Uh, and um, for LGBTQ rights also, that's what I consider a feminist. So uh, at the same token, let me just say this, that many men can be feminists also. So, but, so just, uh, you know, just, not just women, we wanna get women who are progressive. These are the feminists, and these are the people that we wanna support. And I have been greatly influenced, not only by Gloria Steinem, but by Eleanor Smeal, who is uh, the president of the Feminist Majority, of which I'm a board member of that organization. And, uh, yeah, and yeah, we, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We see, I was in Colorado uh, just during this election campaign, uh, campaigning against uh, Proposition 67, which basically said that if a woman has a fertilized egg in her body and she gets rid of that fertilized egg, even through a miscarriage, she could be investigated and uh, she could also be a criminal if that was found to be a, 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 a medical procedure, an abortion. And uh, luckily it was defeated. But, uh, you know, and we have to say to people, an egg 
If you had eggs for breakfast this morning, you didn't have fried chicken. You had eggs. An egg is not a chicken. <laughs> so, you know, we've got there's so much ignorance in the society right now. And, uh, you know, and so this is why we have, I think one of the reasons uh, that people voted the way that they did in this last election is because there's just so much misinformation and so many lies and so much ignorance. And uh, this is, I think, this is, a, I believe, a threat to our society. And, uh, you know, one of the things, I, I'm also a national commissioner on voting rights, and we had hearings all over the country on voter suppression. And one of the shocking things that I found out, they're not teaching civics in school anymore. And so people don't even understand uh, government or the procedures of government. And, uh, and you can see why, why people don't vote, because we just have this vast ignorance right now. Um, I think that's an interesting point, an important point to make again, though, about men can be feminists, too. This mm -hmm. is about social justice. It's not right. about the label. Right, exactly. Uh -huh. uh, you, you, I think you said this, the fruits of leadership are sweet but long in ripening. I take it back to organizing, and I think this is why I have like a, a lifelong commitment uh, to, um, to organizing people. Because when you have an organization, you have a way to reach people, uh, a way to educate them. You know, when we talk about issues such as uh, women's reproductive rights or, or the issues of uh, gay, lesbian, transgender communities and why people should have the right to marry the person that they, that they love, then, you know, you have to educate people to say there's nothing wrong with this. It doesn't affect your life. If I, have, I have 11 kids. My daughter Juanita has four dogs, you know. You know, that, that's her choice. You know, how, why should I, uh, as a Catholic woman, impose my beliefs on somebody else? That that's not right, you know. People need to live their own lives, and the same thing with freedom to marry. I talk about the uh, great Mexican president Benito Juarez, uh, who said his famous phrase was uh, in Spanish, "El respeto al derecho ajeno es la paz," and in English, it's respecting other rights, people's rights as peace. You know, whether your reproductive choice or your uh, freedom to marry, that's your choice. You know, no, no, nobody it doesn't affect your life. And we could use that phrase also when it comes to other countries, you know, respecting other people's rights is peace. Dolores Huerta, thank you for taking the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Dolores Huerta, co-founder with Cesar Chavez of the United Farm Workers Association, president of the Dolores Huerta Foundation. She is a two-time United States Presidential Award recipient. She's a recipient of the Medal of Freedom in 2012 for her years of work the highest civilian honor awarded in the United States. I'm Steve Scher. This is At Length. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association.